Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall remain. Let us pray, O God, who did instruct the hearts of the apostles by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that we, by that same Spirit, may be truly wise, and ever rejoice in his consolation, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Mary, seat of wisdom. Pray for us. St. Catherine of Siena. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, y'all. Hope you're all well-rested and ready for the day. Um, our speaker, first speaker this morning is Father Robert Dodaro. He's an Augustinian, um, so it's a great joy to have um, a sort of relative here with us. And uh, he teaches at St. Augustine Seminary in Toronto. So please welcome Father Robert. Thank you. Thank you for that warm introduction. Thank you for the invitation to speak here. This is my first Thomistic Institute, maybe my last, but it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, uh, an honor to be here, actually. And uh, so, you know, I was asked to speak about virtue, civic virtue, in Augustine, and I'm, I'm going to do that in a kind of a roundabout way. Um, so I have a, uh, a kind of a daring thesis to propose that Augustine revised the standard heroic ideal of his times. And I'll define what I mean by that. I define heroic ideal here in somewhat loose terms to describe the concept common to pagans and Christians of a person of outstanding virtue and accomplishment who serves as a prominent public role model. We might call that an exemplum in Latin for others. In speaking of heroic ideal in this way, I have in mind the Roman concept of the vir bonus or optimus of men like Marcus Regulus, known widely for their virtue and heroism, even though Augustine, following convention, used the Latin term heros, which was a loan word from the Greek, only to refer to men like Hercules or Romulus, who became gods after death. In this paper, I want to suggest the following points, and here's my thesis broken down. Throughout his episcopate, but especially after the beginning of the Pelagian controversy in 411, Augustine consciously sought to refashion Christian understandings of, hero of heroism and heroic virtue. First of all, does anybody here know, does, does anybody here not know that the Pelagian controversy, is that a term that, that means anything to you? Okay, let me explain a little bit about that. So in 410 or so, a monk or a dedicated layman by name of Pelagius comes to Rome 
We're not sure where he's from. And he starts giving biblical uh, kind of exegeses to wealthy women in Rome. This was not uncommon. Jerome made a career out of it. Um, these women lived in villas, and they wanted to study um, Christianity. And Pelagius was only too happy to do so. He wrote a commentary on the epistles of St. Paul. Well, he taught that there was no such thing as original sin. Original sin did not exist. There was only kind of personal sin, sin that you would commit as a, you know, once you were born as a human being, uh, you would commit personal sin. But Original sin just didn't exist. And therefore, a lot of consequences of original sin didn't exist as, as well. Uh, death, fear of death didn't, didn't exist. Death was natural for Pelagius. It wasn't a punishment for sin as it was um, in Augustine's thought. So death, people die. Um, this had a lot of appeal to uh, people in Rome and, and elsewhere on the Italian peninsula. But in 410, with the sack of Rome by Alaric, a uh, number of wealthy uh, Af uh, Roman Christians crossed the Mediterranean Sea and settled in North Africa. And this is how Augustine became aware of this teaching of Pelagius. There was also an associate of Pelagius called Celestius who denied the need for infant baptism. Augustine held that the need for infant baptism was to cleanse the, the, the child of original sin. Celestius said, this is not necessary. There is no you know, sin that needs to be cleansed through baptism. So these ideas were spreading themselves through North Africa in Augustine's time. He was bishop of Hippo Regius, and he resented this teaching and, and saw it you know, as, as erroneous, later as heretical. So a controversy develops between Augustine and Pelagius, and it has to do with anthropology, that is, with, with human beings and their, their conditions in life, but also Christology, and I may get to that in this lecture, uh, or not. So that's the first point of my thesis. The second point... <clears throat> Augustine's effort to refashion Christian understandings of heroism and heroic virtue reaches deeply into his understanding of the human being in relation to virtue and assumes that human beings are not capable of perfecting their virtue in this life to the point that they would be completely free of either sin or the temptation to sin or fear of death they would not be completely free of sin or the temptation to sin or fear of death. St. Ambrose, Bishop of Milan, uh, the bishop who baptized St. Augustine, taught that we could overcome fear of death. Fear of death was a sin, and it was a sin because it, it was a lack of faith, and faith in the resurrection should enable us to overcome fear of death. Augustine didn't accept that at all. Whereas movement in Augustine's thought toward these conclusions can be seen prior to the Pelagian controversy, 
Only after Augustine first becomes familiar with it does he give these conclusions their widest possible extension by applying them even to the greatest of saints, such as Paul. Now, this is where Augustine really gets into deep water. It's one thing to claim that ordinary Christians, you know, uh, do not overcome sin during their lives, do not perfect their virtue during their lives. It's another thing to suggest that the saints didn't, that the martyrs didn't. This was revolutionary. Um, third part of my thesis. This development in Augustine's thought concerning human virtue closely parallels the development in his thought of a clear definition concerning the union of Christ's divine and human nature in one person. His earliest encounter with Pelagian thought gives Augustine more reason to spell out the moral difference separating Christ from all other human beings, even the most saintly or heroic. According to Augustine, Christ's perfection of virtue has to do with his union of the divine nature with the human nature in one person. That is incomparable to any other human being. No other human being achieves that state of perfection because no other human being is both human and divine. The Pelagian controversy especially pushes Augustine to assert in ever stronger terms that Christ's virtue is perfect and therefore unequaled by any other human being, even with the assistance provided by Christ's grace. So even grace couldn't perfect virtue in, in human being. The cause of this fundamental difference between Christ and all other human beings lies in the way, and I said this, that Christ's divine nature is united with his human nature. The uniqueness of this is such for Augustine that even the grace which Christ shares with the members of his body does not enable them to achieve a freedom from concupiscence until death, until after death. Fourth part of the thesis. Although Augustine employs the saints as examples of repentance from sin, <clears throat> even prior to the beginning of the Pelagian controversy, the dispute gives him additional reason and urgency to construct an alternative model of heroic virtue with the heightened awareness of one's sinfulness and dependence upon divine grace at its heart. So Augustine has to redefine what we mean by the hero or the heroic virtue. In Augustine's view, Pelagius had dangerously raised to the level of Orthodox Christian doctrine a set of assumptions about the human capacity to act virtuously, which the bishop saw as lacking any authoritative status in the church. For Augustine, Christians who aspire to a more virtuous life would now be able to find in Pelagian teaching legitimation for what he regarded as none other than presumption and self-congratulation, the very attitudes he views as the foundation of sin and the prime threat to virtue. Here I want to take just a little bit of a break from my text and give you an example of what I'm talking about 
self-congratulation. There was a well-known young woman called Demetrius who was a Roman noblewoman. She and her family escaped from Rome after the sack of Rome by Alaric and settled in North Africa. She was known by Jerome, St. Jerome. She was known by Augustine. And she was known by Ambrose. She was known by every important bishop. She was a woman who decided to become a consecrated virgin, not to marry, but to live in a, in a, in a monastery. Pelagius wrote a letter to her congratulating her on her virtue, on her chastity, on her heroic choice to live this consecrated life. He praised her in superlative terms. The letter was shared by, uh, by Demetrius's mother, I think she was Juliana, with Augustine, who was enraged by it, and wrote to Juliana, pointing out the errors in that judgment of Pelagius concerning Demetrius. Now, Augustine had respect for Demetrius also. He thought that she was a holy woman, but not, not as holy as Pelagius thought she was. So this was the, this was the controversy. Um, and Augustine warned uh, Juliana to warn her daughter, Demetrius, that this kind of congratulation for virtue can serve no other purpose than to e inflate one's self-esteem. If I'm praised for my virtue, I'm going to be subject to, you know, pride. This was Augustine's view, and he stuck to it. So the revised heroic ideal appears in one of, one of his clearest forms in Augustine's treatments of the apostle Paul, in particular in the city of God, where in book 14, chapter 9, Augustine describes Paul as vir optimus et fortissimus, this description sharply contrasts with the conventional understanding of Roman pagan heroes, which he had treated so thoroughly in books 1 to 5 of the City of God. So, so by calling Paul vir optimus, Augustine was using terminology that Roman pagans used to describe their heroes, such as Marcus Regulus, vir optimus, the best. I call it the best and the brightest. Um, and Fortissimus is, of course, the bravest, the strongest. Augustine applies this revised heroic ideal as well to Christian statesmen. He does so in an effort to counter the effects which the Roman cultural tendency to glorify political and military leaders for their virtues and accomplishments could exercise on the minds both of Christian leaders and of those literati, such as Prudentius, who depicted Christian statesmen and saints in tones of moral perfection. So this Pelagian idea was spreading itself into Christian literature. Prudentius was talking about the saints in these heroic terms. And this is what the ordinary Christian thought. 
that the saints, the martyrs, had overcome fear of death, had overcome all sin, and were perfect in virtue. This was the common belief. Augustine has two principal concerns in correcting this cultural tendency. His principal aim is to prevent the Pelagians from providing an orthodox doctrinal basis for what he considers the glorified view of human virtue and human accomplishments, which it shares with general Roman culture. Now I'm going to skip the next part of my paper, which is uh, Augustine's attitudes to heroism before 411, because I'm going to treat this somewhat in my second paper today when we look at the Donatist controversy. Concupiscence in the saints. Most scholars posit a certain development and even substantial changes within Augustine's views on grace during the years that follow Ad Simplicianum, which Augustine wrote in 397 as a priest. He wasn't yet, no, he was a bishop, sorry. One of the clearest examples of this change in Augustine's thinking is the new interpretation of Romans 7, 15 to 24, which emerges in his writings during his controversy with Pelagius. In these verses, Paul complains that he does not do what he wants, but instead does the very thing that he hates, and so on. I do not do what I will to do. Um, I do what I do not will to do. Prior to his dispute with the Pelagians, Augustine refrained from applying the sentiments expressed in this passage to Paul because he did not wish to accuse the apostle of concupiscence. In his earliest writings, he maintains that Paul was describing the interior spiritual struggles of the unbaptized. They were the ones, in other words, who, who struggled with concupiscence whose wills were divided between wanting to do the good and wanting to do evil. Later, during the years leading up to the Pelagian controversy, he gradually assents to the view that Paul was describing the spiritual distress even of Christians as they struggle against concupiscence. Other Christians, that is. Paul wasn't talking about himself, but he was talking vicariously about Christians. In making this clear, however, he still considers Paul to be speaking only vicariously on behalf of those Christians whose justice is far from perfect and not about himself. According to Marie-Francois Berroard, Augustine changes his view sometime in A.D. 417. He does so after reading Pelagius' Pro Libero Arbitria. This treatise is Pelagius' answer to Jerome, who used the text, Romans 7, 15 to 25, to counter Pelagius. Jerome suggested that in Romans 7, Paul spoke for himself as well as for all the baptized. Jerome concluded that Paul was describing an ongoing personal struggle with concupiscence. In Pro Libero Arbitrio, on the free will, Pelagius objected that by attributing this interior struggle to the apostle, Jerome had broken with the practice of earlier Christian authorities. 
they had interpreted Paul as speaking on behalf of the Jews because they were thought to be sinning under the old law. So Pelagius accuses Jerome of unorthodox teaching because he's breaking with an established tradition for understanding Paul as sinless. In Beruard's view, Augustine adopts Jerome's position on Romans 7 because he sees that his own interpretation of the passage runs perilously close to supporting Pelagius' defense of the power of human freedom over sin. Meanwhile, Julian of Aclanum, another Pelagian, um, supporter of Pelagius, and a writer, writes to Rome during the following year and accuses Augustine of calumnizing Paul. This is a serious charge. Paul was regarded as, you know, the prototype of saintly, saintly Christians by Christians at the time. There was a great devotion to St. Paul. Preachers preached about Paul all of a sudden at the end of the fourth century. So the charge that Augustine is calumnizing Paul you know, would reverberate with, with Christians in, in Rome. Augustine rebutes the charge in a long section in Book One of Contra Duis Epistolas Pelagianorum, acknowledging and defending his new position, a new position being in alignment with Jerome. In spite of this declared change of view, however, in the final analysis, Augustine merely admits that he regards his more recent interpretation as more probable. Clearly, Augustine reaches this position with great difficulty. This is hard for Augustine to adopt Jerome's point of view. He risks seeming to diminish the heroic stature of Paul by weakening the exemplary appeal of his virtue, even at a time when preachers are stressing, are stressing the value of Paul and other Christian martyrs as examples of virtue in the face of moral laxity among Christians. There was extreme moral laxity going on in Rome. There still is, by the way, extreme moral laxity. I lived there for 37 years. I, I, I know about this. So, you know, bishops, preachers needed Paul to be perfect in virtue so they could urge Christians in Rome to strive for the perfection of their virtue. If, if the Romans were to adopt Augustine's point of view, that perfection of virtue is not possible except for Christ. Well, you know, <laughs> what can you expect of me, right? This was the fear. Earlier, these earlier Christian authorities had interpreted Paul as speaking on behalf of the Jews because they were thought to be sinning under the old law. In Beruard's view, Augustine adopts Jerome's position on Romans 7 because he sees that his own interpretation of the passage runs perilously close to supporting Pelagius' defense of the power of human freedom over sin. I read that part. Got, yeah, okay. So clearly Augustine reaches this position with great difficulty. All right. 
Julian's charge that Augustine canonizes Paul probably reflect, reflects the thinking of many Christians who regard the saint as an unparalleled example of virtue. Augustine's difficulty in admitting his change of view in regard to Romans 7 is therefore significant, not only as an index of his reluctance to accuse Paul of concupiscence, but more importantly, as an indication of a change in his understanding of grace. Remember, Augustine said that Jerome's was the more probable opinion. He, he endorsed it. He thought Paul of Jerome's view was the correct view, but probably, or more probably. There's still some reluctance on the part of Augustine to adopt this view. But he does, nevertheless. With the advent of the Pelagian controversy, Christian martyrs become limit cases for Augustine. He employs them to underscore Christ's unique freedom from concupiscence, which no other human beings can share. Had Augustine not been pressed by the Pelagian party to accept a more univocal understanding of the relationship between Christ's virtue and that of martyrs and saints like Paul, he would not have needed to modify his interpretation of Romans 7 or to emphasize the extent to which even the saints require grace to overcome concupiscence and its effects. Augustine is conscious that in responding to the Pelagian challenge to his position on grace, he is redefining basic Christian conceptions of moral perfection, heroism, and the imitation of Christ. I was stunned once in studying Augustine to come across a text in his commentary on the Psalms that we should not imitate Christ. We cannot imitate Christ. Now, you know, I mean, how, what does that mean? We shouldn't imitate Christ. Um, Augustine, of course, didn't mean that Christ's virtue shouldn't be for us a guide, a signpost of what we were to strive to achieve in our life. We should work with grace to overcome sin and to live virtuously. He's just saying, it's not possible. Augustine's new emphasis on the necessity of grace, even to Paul, appears in another significant change in his representation of Paul's experience of concupiscence. This too may be traced to the time of the Pelagian controversy and concerns Paul's fear of death. In a series of sermons, treatises, and biblical commentaries, which he composed after his first contact with Pelagian ideas, he admits that even martyrs such as Peter and Paul experienced fear of death as a natural consequence of their conflict with concupiscence. This was, again, stunning to people. People thought, no, Peter and Paul died not fearing death because of their, their faith in, in, in the resurrection, their faith in Christ. They overcame fear of death, just as Ambrose had said they should, or all Christians should. At the same time, he insists that although their fear of death clearly represents a failure of virtue, it does not tarnish their saintly status. So you see, now we're supposed to see the saint in a slightly different way than before, not as having overcome all fear of death, not as having reached perfection of virtue, but being saintly nevertheless. 
being worthy of imitation, nevertheless. Instead, their interior, interior struggle to accept martyrdom in spite of their fear purifies their virtue, thereby contributing to its perfection in death. So virtue is perfected in death, in the death of the martyr. Not prior to the death of the martyr, but in the death of the martyr. And we should, we should regard the, the martyrs as even greater because in spite of their fear of death, they accept martyrdom. They hadn't overcome fear of death and just said, yeah, kill me. I believe in Christ. It was a struggle, an interior struggle on the part of martyrs to do this because they were struggling with their own fear of death. And that's why they're heroic in this new term of heroism. Along with his revised view of Romans 7, Augustine's acknowledgement that both apostles, Peter and Paul, never overcame fear of death in their earthly life represents a direct rebuttal to Pelagian arguments that human beings, by imitating Christ, can be fully just and avoid sin altogether. So that's my thesis. I'll stop there and take questions. Thank you. Um, so, uh, thanks for the, the talk. Um, I was I was interested, you know, in something you said at the start, which um, was that you know Christ is the only is the only is the only one who who achieves the perfection and virtue. Yes. Um, and is. I just, I just, yeah, I was curious if there's like a middle ground between Christ's perfection of virtue, the saints' failure to, to, to truly perfect virtue. Where does, um, where does, you know, the Virgin Mary? Yes, that's a good question. Where does Mary fall in this scheme? Pelagius actually accused Augustine of calumnizing Mary. So this was out there as a charge. Augustine said that Mary was preserved from original sin in order to honor the Lord. In order to honor the Lord. So this was a special privilege given to Mary. Let me explain a little bit more about how I think Augustine thought about the conception of Mary without sin. First of all, he didn't think that Mary was conceived without sin. He would not have subscribed to the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. I mean, a lot of Christian scholars didn't. I think Thomas didn't. Or did he? I think Thomas did. He did. Okay. Sorry, I stand. Thomas on the Immaculate Conception. Um, so Thomas does not hold for the Immaculate Conception. He holds that Mary is sanctified in the womb, similar to yeah. the Baptist and Jeremiah. Right. Um, and while he acknowledges that the Immaculate Conception is something possible, he holds that he doesn't think it happened uh, in his reasons sort of on account of like, well, salvation comes through the cross. And so that's, uh, so he's, he's wrong. we like to say he's wrong, but for the right reasons. Right. <laughs> so Augustine doesn't believe that Mary was conceived without original sin. But, and it's a big but, he does say that she never sinned. 
She never sinned in her entire life. She was spotless without personal sin. Now, knowing what we know about Augustine and baptism and freedom from original sin and the effects of original sin, no one who is born, who is conceived with original sin can avoid personal sin. No one. So how does Mary avoid personal sin? Augustine suggests, and it's subtle, very subtle. It's like, uh, maybe like Thomas is subtle. Um, that before Mary was born, she, she was, you know, cleansed of original sin. So after conception, but before birth, Mary was cleansed of original sin. So that once she's born, she cannot sin. She does not sin because she's without original sin. She's without that stain of original sin. Whether or not that's an acceptable thesis, that seems to me to be the logic of Augustine's position. But he doesn't spell it out in so many words. He does say that Mary was free from sin, but he does also say that she inherited original sin. Yeah. Yeah, I have a, I have a question on the Sorry, I can't hear you. Sorry, I, I, have a talk, I have a question about the end of your talk where you say that that for Augustine, the martyr's virtue is perfected in death. Yeah. And I'm wondering, I've, I've always heard that Augustine considered death to be a natural evil, that death was not a part of Adam and Eve's existence in the garden, that it wouldn't have existed without the fall. I'm wondering how virtue can be perfected through a natural evil. You heard... The, the, the head of Augustine? Yes. Yeah, is that, is, is that wrong? Dead <laughs> <laughs> wrong. Yeah. Uh, death was not natural. Um, to, to Adam and Eve, they would not have died had they not committed the original sin. And we wouldn't die unless we had inherited original sin from Adam and Eve. Death and fear of death are a punishment for original sin, which not even baptism can remove from, from us. Is that yeah, so, so so how is how is virtue perfected in a natural evil like death? In, in death. Because the martyrs are crowned by Christ for their act of martyrdom. In other words, they receive the grace of perfection of virtue as a result of their, of their courage in, in martyrdom. So the perfection of virtue is a reward for martyrdom, but it's not something that occurs during or before martyrdom. Yeah. Is virtue perfected in the face of temptation? By resisting temptation, do we perfect virtue? Yeah, Augustine. Perfection of virtue, Augustine actually wrote a work called um, On the Perfection of Justice, Righteousness, and he thinks it's 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 kind of like um, a, a what do I mean to say a scale or a, yeah it's a process, so we can gradually perfect our virtue yes, gradually perfect our virtue we cannot reach perfection of virtue, but we can certainly by avoiding sin by avoiding temptation we perfect our virtue. 
in that in that sense. I, I guess so. So I mean, if if so, the way the way I take your answer to Andrew's question is that because sort of God crowns the martyrs for accepting death, they're, they're sort of like a. Um, the death of the martyrs is made good not because it is death, but because sort of God makes it good, right? Yes. Um, I guess what other sort of evils, like the evil of temptation, can bestow sort of a similar, obviously uh, perfecting, even if it sort of doesn't ever reach maximal perfection, but perfecting um, influence on us. And, and I guess like, where is the line between? Because I, I don't think any, I don't think Augustine would say you know we should like actively seek out temptation so that we can resist it and perfect or, you know, achieve, right. achieve greater virtue. But it would seem like one could be led to that conclusion if one subscribed to the idea that natural evils can be perfecting if God is. Here we enter the, the theology of grace of Augustine, right? Um, Augustine doesn't believe, really, that we can perform a virtuous act on our own. It's only because Christ's grace acts within us. You know, there's a text in Augustine, and he talks about the experience of preaching the gospel. And he says, okay, there are times when I know I preached a good sermon. I really just killed it. <laughs> and I sin in that moment. I sin because of pride. I take credit for the good that I did. There are times when I blew it, and I knew that I blew it. The sermon did not work, and I, 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 I'm there, and I feel shame and displeasure with myself. And that, too, is sinful, because, he says, God loves a cheerful giver. And we're not giving cheerfully if we're despondent or, or down because what we gave doesn't, doesn't appeal to us as being very good. Maybe it wasn't very good. But, you know, nevertheless, it's pride either way. It's pride either way. So, so pride is inevitable. You know, we, we... Augustine thinks that the greatest virtue and the basis of all virtues is humility. Sometimes people refer to him as the doctor of charity, but it's really he's the doctor of humility. Um, and humility is recognition that all the good that we do, all the good that we do, and all the evil we avoid is because of Christ's direct gracious action in us. We can take no credit for the good we do or the evil we avoid. Um, yes? This is, might be like kind of a confusing question, so I apologize in advance. But from what I understand, people, you know, like with Christ's miracles during his earthly ministry, like people throughout history have like reflected that. Um, like no one's going around like turning water into wine, right? Um, and if so, like, let me know, because, like, that would be cool guy to party. But, like, uh, like, there's, there are miracles. Church, like, obviously, like, these saints need a miracle, right? And so that would, like, suggest that at some level, people can reflect, like, Christ was doing these miracles in, like, human nature, and we can, like, reflect that. 
But at the same time, it's like certain people only have like a capacity to like, you know, like I'm probably never gonna be able to like, perform a miracle, other people like have been able to. And so the reason I'm, I'm talking about miracles is when it comes to like virtue, I, I understand that like we're not gonna be able to reach the perfectibility of Christ, you know, as you as Augustine says. But like, like, does this mean that like certain people just like naturally are able to like get more perfect than others? Like, are we constrained by our own like natural limitations? Where like maybe I'll only if I follow through the model of Christ, um, be able to like be like eighty percent of the way to like perfection before I die, versus someone else might be able to get like ninety percent because they're just like naturally like more disposed to be a more virtuous person. Like, is is that how that works, or is there still like can we like is like the ceiling like not constraints because like that's my concern is that the individual if we cannot reach per perfection it kind of is left to like very be very relative does that make sense yeah, it's, it's, it, it becomes very relative of like we're all like kind of constrained to our own individual like limitations in terms of like reaching perfection which like even if i want to like perfectly imitate christ I might only get X amount of the way there, where someone else might be able to just naturally be able to get like. Yeah. Augustine was concerned about rivalry, yeah, competition yeah. in virtue. I'm going to talk about that later <clears throat> uh, today, uh, specifically <clears throat> about that. Um, there's a line which I love. It's in. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. It's in the work. Um, I think it's in the work on the perfection of righteousness or justice. And it's in the spirit and the letter, De Spiritual Litera of Augustine, where he says, that person has made great progress in the spiritual life who knows just how far off lies the perfection of his virtue. In other words, if we think we've made progress in virtue, you know, again, pride enters into the picture and we're missing the point. The point is how far off lies the perfection of virtue, not how much progress have we made toward it. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I wanted to ask a little bit about imitation. But he never says that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask a little bit about imitation because yeah. um, you said... You were surprised that Augustine, uh, Augustine said, you know, we should not imitate Christ. But right. you said later, looking at Paul, we should still imitate Paul. Like, what's the relationship between imitation of Christ himself versus saints, or maybe more akin to, to our kind of natural like, human experience? Or, like, yeah, can you just elaborate on that? Imitation of anybody for Augustine is risky. It's risky because it sets up a competition with the person. If I'm trying to imitate your athleticism, say, you know, then I train in order to be as athletic as you are. But behind my training is the thought that I can overcome your athleticism and be better at it. So this is how Augustine regards the imitation of virtue as, a, as a, a good thing, but also with risks. I'm going to talk about this again this afternoon. It's not risk-free imitation of Christ. Because, again, it sets Christ up as someone we can model. We can actually become Christ if we're imitating him. We can catch up with Christ. 
See, that's, that's the problem. And that was being preached in Augustine's day. We don't preach it anymore because of Augustine in the Western church. Yeah. Is the, the alternative then is to become Christ-like. Not yes. to become Christ, to become Christ-like. Um, so I guess maybe it's a semantic difference, but also like a real difference. To be Christ-like, does that not entail like imitating Christ? It does. Yes. Okay. So to clarify, yes, we should imitate Christ, but we cannot imitate him perfectly. Christ is an exemplum for Augustine. Christus exemplum. So he's, he is a formal model of the holiness to which we should strive. He doesn't jettison Christ aside. Um, though he wants everybody to remember that Christ's virtue is a result of the hypostatic union. He didn't use that term. It hadn't come into vogue yet, but that's what he meant the union of the divine and human natures in one person. And that no saint, no saint is gifted with that. No saint is part of the incarnation. No saint is, 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 is a divine human or a human divine. Augustine, talking about Christ, frequently refers to him as Deus Homo, as if it's just one word, Deus Homo, God-man. So that we get the idea that the natures can't be split. I'll tell you a funny story. Have I got time yet? You've got time. Okay, a funny story. Um, when I was teaching in Rome, um, I taught the development of Christology in the fourth and fifth centuries. And we came across the problem of the Alexandrian approach and the Antiochian approach. And I won't go into that because that would take us away. But the Antiochian approach tended to separate the nature of Christ's divinity and his humanity. They, they were joined, they were conjoined by a, a, a thread, really. Uh, but they were, they were actually independent one of another. So the Antiochians didn't, didn't consider the union of Christ's divinity and, and humanity in one person. So um, what am I thinking of? Oh, God, I'm blanking. Um, not Theodoret, not Theodosius, <laughs> Theo something. Uh, Theodore of Mopsuestia, that's it. Theodore, Bishop of Mopsuestia, which is in Turkey. Uh, I passed through uh, Mopsuestia and spat out the window. <laughs> Theodore of Mopsuestia, uh, trying to explain the verse in, in, in Matthew. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which sounds blasphemous because it is blasphemous. Okay. Um, and uh, 
Theodore Mopsuestia proposed as a resolution of that, get this, that Christ was having a bad day. And his, his response, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was simply an outburst coming from his human nature. It was his human nature talking, not his divine nature. So Augustine mocks this position and says, no, this is, this is not acceptable. As an explanation of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that's the funny story. Theodore Mops West. We'll do a uh, last question from David. David. So as, as you know much better than me, Augustine conflicted with Jerome over how to understand Paul's rebuke of Peter in Galatians. Yes. And in the, if everybody, so you remember Peter's refusing to eat with Gentile Christians, and Paul says, I rebuked him to his face, and, and publicly so. How, how do you think Augustine's view on that, where even Peter can fall into that kind of sin and need to be rebuked, how do you think that shapes or should shape the way we think about leadership, office, hierarchy, and, and the church? Today? Yeah. Church today. Yeah, I, I think we should take that as, as a positive example of how we should uh, rebuke uh, church leaders. Um, in fact, one of the greatest defenders of rebuking church leaders is Thomas Aquinas. Um, <laughs> he says, you know, you should try to correct the, even the Pope. You should try to correct the Pope verbally. It is, it is the feast day of a great corrector of Popes. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. But, you know, failing that, um, you should criticize the Pope openly. And he's not the only one who takes that position among the saints. So um, even the canon law of the Catholic Church today doesn't talk about rebuking the Pope, I assure you. But it does say that you know Christians, even Christian lay people, have an obligation when they perceive that something is being taught that is contrary to the faith. They have an obligation in charity and in a charitable way to confront the the church officer official who is who is uh, making a, an erroneous statement. Thank you, Father. Okay. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.